Hey, TMC followers, just wanted to give you a heads up. If you haven't already, like our Facebook page or follow us and subscribe to us on YouTube. It's a great way to stay connected. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkoff. Dave, as we were preparing for this podcast, I I was talking with a pastor several weeks ago, and one of the things we were talking about was uh, there was a, someone giving a message at his church, great message, and but two responses, right? One person said, man, after the message, it was so great. I was hanging on every word. And then the other person who was a little bit newer said, man, I, I felt a little bit lost. I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And today on the podcast, I'll just prepare you, the listener, we're going to be getting into some deeper level stuff. But I hope as we do that, that this will really challenge and strengthen your face. And if you have questions that you'll interact with us, hopefully through email, Ezra at the Monday Christian, David, the Monday Christian.com. Um, and we can start a, a conversation. So that's kind of my hope and prayer through all of this. Yeah, I'm excited uh, to have Dr. Walton on with us today. Uh, interesting story when you told me, so Ez tends to do a lot of the heavy lifting with uh all of the podcasts, so I just want to publicly thank him for that because this is a huge blessing for me to be a part of. But uh, he also gets a lot of the guests on, and so I was in the middle of writing a paper, and I was reading through this book. It was very helpful. Uh, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, John H. Walton. So when he told me that we were having him on, I was like, "Oh, I've got, I've got, I've got sticky notes. I've got questions." And uh, <laughs> you're so all set for those, to go. I, I guess I don't really know. I feel in some ways it's kind of like I don't want to speak for you. Um, it's like we know enough about Genesis to start a cult, maybe. Uh, and that's, by the way, that's a, a close quote of one of his friends, uh, Dr. Andy Hill. But uh, yeah, yeah I, so I'm maybe a bit over my skis a little bit, but I'm looking forward to chat with him. For those of you that maybe don't know him, uh, Dr. Walton teaches um, at Wheaton, and uh, his specialty uh, is uh, studying especially Genesis, uh, early writings in the Hebrew Bible, and um, uh, the book that we're going to kind of be referencing today is The Lost World of Genesis 1. Uh, previously, I think he taught for 20 years at Moody and uh, has a PhD um, uh, from Hebrew Union College um, he, right here in Cincinnati. And so, uh, Ez, let's get him on right and on let's, uh, let's start peppering him with some questions. What do you say? I said, it's a great idea. Just this morning, I opened up, so I always up, open up like my commentaries in the morning to read, and I was opening up to Genesis this morning, and the first commentary right there from John Walton, and it's, it's people like this, they have such an impact on your life, and then you finally get to meet him. It's like, wow, yeah. this, is, this is really exciting. So yeah. without any further ado, uh, Dr. John Walton, uh, welcome, and thank you for coming on the Monday Christian Podcast. My pleasure, Ezra, Dave, nice to meet you, and uh, looking forward to our conversation. I want to start with such a basic question, but how did you come to faith in Christ? What did that look like for you? Sometimes when I'm being um, light, I say I was born a Christian. It's <laughs> almost true uh, because I was born into a, a very stable, secure Christian family, was raised in the faith. And so 
as early as I could make any decisions on my own, I made that decision to, uh, to follow Christ. The career path you chose, and as Dave just mentioned, eventually getting your PhD and during extensive study in, in, in ancient Near Eastern thought, from what I understand, that wasn't exactly your initial thought through your early days of university, and you were prepared to go another direction. Am I mistaken? Well, no, you're not mistaken, uh, but I don't know that I was prepared to. <laughs> I, I had always loved Old Testament, and if I had thought early enough that you could be an Old Testament professor, I would have been going there the whole time. But I never even considered that as a possible vocational path just because didn't, it didn't occur to me. Mm. Um, and so my love for the Old Testament, I concluded would kind of be a hobby because I didn't know what else to do with it. And so in college, based on vocational testing, I was an economics and accounting major. Uh, but as soon as I realized that there was actually a career in teaching Old Testament, I was I was done with accounting and ready to, to take the academics path. Like, what did that look like through high school? I mean, was that very early on? Like, why did you have such a fascination with the Old Testament, do you think? You know, it's tough to go back and uh, analyze yourself as a child. Um, because I was raised uh, in the Bible, both in my home and my church, I got to know the Bible very well, very early. And hmm. it wasn't any merit or extra skills on my part. I was just raised that way. And so by the time I was you know, not, you know, still pre-adolescent, uh, I basically knew all the trivia there was in the Bible. And that, that turned out really handy for Bible quizzes and Bible football and what have you. And <laughs> it, was, uh, it was kind of a way that I distinguished myself because adults didn't know as much as I knew. And my peers certainly didn't know as much as I knew. And, you know, when a kid's good at something, they kind of start to say, well, I like this. Uh, so, you know, maybe all the wrong reasons, but still it got me on the path where I really enjoyed the Old Testament, enjoyed learning more about the Old Testament. And of course, as, as you know, and as I came to learn, uh, just knowing the trivia isn't knowing the Old Testament. Mm. But, you know, everything in its, in its time, and so those are steps along the path. As if I can just jump in here, the first question, um, you know, as we shared with you sort of uh, pre-podcast, the, the focus and our passion is turning Sunday belief into Monday action. So we have this very practical lean towards our podcast. Um, can you share with our audience... Um, obviously, uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a very prolific writer, and odds are if you pull uh, a commentary off of the shelf randomly or look for commentaries in Genesis, uh, you're going to run into Dr. Walton's material. Why are you so passionate? Um, my question actually is written down, why does this matter to you so much? I, I mean, I, don't, I know that's a long answer maybe, but wh why specifically are some of these um, early writings in the scriptures so important and, and understanding them? Um, why is it so important to you from maybe a discipling perspective? Yeah. Well, I tend to be a problem solver. And that means my attention drifts toward controversial passages. And of course, you can find them in abundance in Genesis. Yeah. And so that became a focus of some of my problem solving uh, ideas and tendencies. Um, I think also because as many people recognize, 
it's not just called the book of beginnings because it happens to be first in the Bible. It's fundamental to the Bible. And what we decide as we read Genesis has a lot of impact on what we decide when we read the rest of the Bible. Uh, it's also a place where um, we test lots of issues, uh, Bible and science, of course, being one of them, Bible and history being another one. And so lots of these issues have their first test in the book of Genesis. I was, as I said, raised in the Bible and then therefore raised to be committed to biblical authority. And that's remained a very strong emphasis throughout all of my academic career and my writing. And I feel that lots of my writing is focused on trying to help people understand the implications of biblical authority and how to work that out passage by passage. It's interesting when you talk about Genesis 1. So I pastored in Toronto for several years. I was talking with a pastor, a local pastor, about this, you know, about some of the um, ways some churches in the U.S. will talk about this passage, right? And it's obviously very controversial. To them, it was actually very confusing. And they said, well, it didn't really even make sense. And I kind of ran into that a number of places where it just really wasn't that big of a deal. But then you go to different sections, especially of the U.S., from what I'm familiar with, and this really is a, a huge deal. And you write in your book, it is regrettable that an account of such beauty has become such a bloody battleground but that is indeed the case. So let's just kind of pull back. For the person unfamiliar with Genesis 1, why has this become kind of that battleground that sometimes Christians kind of fight it out over? Well, I think it's because of this issue of how, how people perceive that biblical authority has its ramifications. Uh, lots of people express it that if the Bible is authoritative, we need to read it literally. Now, we can discuss, and maybe we will in a little bit, what exactly we mean by literally. But for some people, that means that when they read Genesis 1, it says seven days, and it means seven days, seven 24-hour days for the entire material cosmos to come into being. If they read it that way, then they are committed to what they refer to as a young earth. Uh, they take those seven days, then they add up the genealogies, they get to Abraham, and on they go. And that seems to them, and I was raised in that context, so I understand it well, it seems to them that that requires, biblically requires, a young earth. And so they're just fighting for the Bible as far as they're concerned, fighting for the Bible's truth, uh, fighting for the Bible as God's word. And I don't blame them for that a bit. I, I want to do the same in every way that I can. Uh, just to follow up there. So to, to be clear, um, uh, you are not anti-supernatural. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so I think when, I, I think this is a touchy subject for some folks when they hear like you, like you presented, that undermining this supernatural thing that God did. Um, mm -hmm. and they're also, you know, is the resurrection up for grabs and all of these other 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 things. Um, you're, you have to probably sign some sort of inerrancy statement or something to be at Wheaton to begin with, right? So absolutely, um, and and you sign those pretty confidently, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think yeah. Well, I think it's it's like the question: Hey, does this open up Pandora's box, right? Because we have this neat box of how Genesis one should go, like from say a young Earth 
creation model. Um, what would you say to those that say, okay, if we look at this any differently, that somehow this is diminishing how we look at scripture? My contention is that we are always accountable to the biblical authors and what they intend to communicate. Mm -hmm. uh, God has the authority, but he vested that authority in human communicators, human instruments. And therefore, if we want God's authoritative message, we have to go through those human instruments. That means if I'm going to be accountable to God, I have to be accountable to those human instruments and what they had to say. Now, that blocks off a lot of options in terms of feeling like you can do anything you want. Mm -hmm. I'm committed to what the human authors intend. But as we know, it's not always straightforward to figure out precisely what the human authors intend. That's the problem, yeah. Well, but if you're trying that, you can't read the resurrection passages of the New Testament and think that somehow they meant that as a metaphor. There's just, yeah. there's just no way. And in that regard, no, the resurrection isn't threatened at all. It's very easy to read what the author's intentions are. Genesis 1 is another matter. And there are issues involved that people often don't recognize. Let's just go right into that. So you, you share a view called the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View. Explain what that is for those in our audience that might be unfamiliar with, with that term. I feel that when we read a passage like the Genesis creation account, we have to ask, what do the authors believe is God's purpose in creating? What's the author's purpose and what's God's purpose? And for that, I think that we need to look at day seven. It's interesting because lots of people talk about the six days of creation because they think seven's a throwaway. Oh, mm, that's just mm. some Jewish, Jewish tradition, whatever. You know, it has nothing to do with me. I'm not under the law. Well, that's not the law, but at any rate, um, it comes. that comes later. But we, we get confused with day seven because it talks about God resting. And we, we don't know what to make of that. That's puzzling to us. God doesn't get tired or exhausted. He doesn't need leisure time. He's, you know, what, what do we mean by that? And, and that's really a, a difficulty that we have trying to read ancient texts, because there are things that are not obvious to us that are obvious to them. And what we find when we look at, even in places in the Old Testament, but certainly in the ancient world, when God rests, he doesn't rest on a bed or on a recliner or on a hammock. God rests on his throne. And that gives us the non-intuitive, to us at least, non-intuitive idea that when God rests, he rules. And God's rule is the focus of the creation account. And he is bringing everything under his rule. And of course, he rules in a temple. And that's why I talk about the cosmos is likened to a temple here. Because just as God dwells in his temple, God dwells in the cosmos and created it in order to dwell among us. His presence being among us. And so we have God's presence and the establishment of God's presence um, in the cosmos as the focus of Genesis 1. Okay, so you, you mentioned sort of growing up with a different perspective. Um, what was formative in sort of this, um, this, this move, probably a slow move as you, 
as you read and analyzed data, but what, what were some of the formative texts and things that you were looking at um, to, to sort of uh, see Genesis in, in a new way? All through my graduate work and into my early teaching career, I was studying Genesis, I was writing on Genesis, I was studying the ancient Near East, and I was learning all about the ancient Near East. So all the building blocks were being assembled, but I, I, I didn't quite know how to put them together. I felt okay. like as I read Genesis 1 that I was missing something, missing an important key to put things together, and I just couldn't find it. So I was assembling all the, the building blocks, getting, getting ready to try to put them in place, but I, I just couldn't figure it out. And it really occurred to me rather suddenly one day, actually I was in class teaching this material and uh, the, the direction of the discussion led me to phrase the question, what kind of creation account is this anyway? Hmm. And it was that question that made me suddenly say, yes, that's what we need to address. After all, when we treat it as kind of a modern account with trying to read science into it and all of that, we're treating it as a material, physical, scientific origins yeah. account. And we've got no right to do that if the authors weren't reading it that way. Absolutely. So we have to ask what kind of creation account is it from their perspective? And that changed everything. Yeah, I think, I think you're touching on something that maybe permeates a lot of what happens has happened i don't this is broad brushing a bit but post enlightenment it seems like everything uh, many things ev everything became hyper rational and, mm -hmm. and, and, and very focused on neat little explanations um whether that's um you know sometimes for example like the the lord's supper has become a time where we're more apt to explain everything it isn't and uh the three easy steps to and it and it maybe sucks the joy out of it or something. But so obviously someone that would have a uh, young earth perspective would have pastoral concerns about some of your writing. I was just wondering if you could share with us, um, you mentioned maybe at the front, I think it was in the Eastern, ancient Near Eastern thought writing, um, that you sort of had some pastoral concerns as well. Could you share with us some of the you know, if we misinterpret this or read this as literal, what potential damage in discipling could that have? Um, beyond, beyond just misreading it, what would be your cons pastoral concern for somebody that would understand um, maybe Genesis as a, a literal seven days? Well, I think that, first of all, we have to recognize that uh, if you've ever had conversations with skeptics trying to draw them you know, closer into a biblical conversation, one of the huge obstacles is this idea of young earth and the role of science and evolution and um, those kinds of things, the age of the earth. Uh, and likewise, uh, the studies show that a huge percentage of those young people who drift away from the church, this is one of their reasons. There are others, of course, uh, but that's one of the ones that they give. Uh, from that standpoint, I don't know what could be more important from a pastoral perspective than bringing people in and keeping people in uh, by, by interpreting well. That doesn't mean by compromising, and it doesn't mean by giving things away. 
it means to consider what the options are. When we talk about reading literally, we can't mean reading an English Bible literally the way we think in our culture. We have to think of reading the ancient text literally, which really technically requires Hebrew, um, and reading it in what the author intended. You can't read a text more literally than to read it the way the author intended it to be read. And that means we at least have to ask the question, what kind of creation account is this in the Israelite mind? Because God worked through them in their language and their culture. I think that's a great point. Even just as a basic hermeneutic concept or how you study the Bible more broadly, understanding Colossae and Paul's relation to Colossae and maybe to Epiphras, the person that was sort of there and kind of started the church, and the fact that this was a letter, like all of those things go into interpreting what, how you read what he's saying. And uh, so to, to your point, I think it's important that when you read um, history versus poetry versus a letter versus the various ways that the biblical authors communicated, um, I, I think you're making an important point here. And it even goes to the next step. If I can briefly share an illustration that I use. Please. Um, imagine that you're going to a play and because of traffic and you know parking and all of this, you will end up walking into the theater half an hour late. And you patiently wait for intermission and then you poke the person next to you and you say, how did the play begin? And he says, oh, well, this play was written in 1934. And you say, no, 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 that's, that's not what I want to know. He said, well, that's how the play began. You can't have a play without a script. I, I know, but then the person on the other side says, well, this set was constructed particularly for this play just last month. And I said, no, no, I mean, they said, well, you can't have the play without the set. The set is a bit, I, I know, I know, but that's not what I'm asking. Then the person behind you says, well, the, the cast was chosen, but I, I, I know you can't have a play without a cast, but that's not what I want to know. What I want to know is what's happened since the curtain opened. Now, what I find very important about that illustration is that all of those answers are right answers. You can talk about how the play began by talking about the script or the set or the cast, even the theater. I mean, you could approach it any number of ways. And they're all right answers. They're not contradictory answers. They all answer the question, but they're, they're different, obviously. And therefore, they don't all answer the question that the person had. We have to do the same thing with something like Genesis 1 to say, what are the questions they're asking? And what is, what is the issue that they have? We can't just give what we think is the best answer of how the world began from our point of view. We need to consider their point of view. That is the very basis of authority. I'm jumping back into this, and I feel like that person that just walked into church late and missed like 15 ah. minutes of the opening sermon. So uh, I'm coming back into this again here after my internet crashed. But John, what impacted your wife, Kim? I believe she's a biochemist, right? What impact did she have in your writing of Genesis 1? And the, I could only imagine the conversations Whoa. you had. Did he, did he actually write Genesis 1, or did he write a book about Genesis 1? Because this changes everything if, the, if he's the... <laughs> Sorry, yes. Yeah. The Lost World of Genesis 1. There we go. Yes, Lost World of Genesis 1. 
Okay, so my wife was trained in biochemistry. That was what her graduate work was in, but she really has not worked as a biochemist, but she has the training. She knows how to think that way. And even when we were in grad school, I was doing Old Testament at Hebrew Union. She was doing biochemistry at University of Cincinnati. And we had loads of conversations uh, about the early chapters of Genesis. She didn't have set ideas in her mind about how to do that. And so she's never pushed a particular perspective on me, uh, but she's a great conversation partner and a great resource. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have a high aptitude in the sciences. I like to say that when I speak the language of science, um, it's, it's called stupid. Uh, I just really <laughs> am not. And, um, I can connect with the, that. The particular <laughs> dialect I have of science is stupid. So, um, so I'm very glad to have uh, her insight. Um, but it's been a conversation all along the way. And when I developed my particular ways of reading the text through the ancient Near Eastern lens, uh, that then helped her to think in new ways. And it's just been that kind of feeding back and forth. Do you find that this issue of science and faith when you interact with students, is this a big hot button topic for students these days or is it shifting? I think it is shifting. Uh, you know, um, a decade ago, I might've still said that it was a big issue, um, yeah. but uh, very current times, I almost feel like the students have want to move past it and say, you know, I don't wanna get all embroiled in that kind of mess. Uh, so it doesn't seem to me like there's quite as much um, interest, uh, angst about it as there was 10 years ago. Which I'm assuming you would say is a more, quote unquote, biblical view of Genesis 1, right? That sometimes we get so focused on the smaller details that sometimes, again, I don't want to misspeak for you, but we lose sight of the grander narrative taking place. Uh, it, in that comparison, I would agree. Uh, of course, for people to say it doesn't matter, I don't care, you know, I, I don't, I don't want um, apathy, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, uh, but I want an interest in understanding it well. But I also um, am encouraged by the fact that it's not hardcore apologetics. Let's prove every point, point by point, uh, through the issues. Hmm. I'm not sure that's the way to get where we're going. So. Uh, so once again, as confession, we might be out over our skis a little bit, but my question would be, what about folks that are, um, a attempting to do some of the same interpretation and are very, uh, they're, they're interpreting the, the texts, um, and, this, and trying to bring that to bear on the biblical text, but also... Um, are very anti-supernatural um, and might not even uh, embrace Christianity at all. Um, how do you distinguish what they're doing and some of the interpreting that you're doing? Because I think for somebody that knows uh, that maybe is a bit binary and embraces uh, literal seven-day creation, there's the Orthodox people and then there's all those crazy liberals over there that, um, this is a poorly formed question, I'm realizing this in real time, but there's these two groups 
So how would you distinguish your view from a more binary understanding of that? Because at some point, while your view would um, satisfy somebody that has how does faith and science intersect in Genesis, I'm not sure that that solves the resurrection question entirely because that is very supernatural. So, and is kind of supra-rational in some way. Does that make sense? God is a creator. That is a that is a statement that cannot avoid supernatural implications. God is the creator. Whatever mechanisms he used, he is the creator. Um, and so in that sense, I'm not removing myself from any kind of supernatural view. I believe the Bible is given to us supernaturally. I believe that God acts in ways that uh, only he can act. And so in that sense, this is not an issue of whether it's supernatural or not. Uh, also, let me clarify, um, I actually do believe that the seven days are seven literal days. Um, yeah. My distinction is what happened in those seven days? What does the text say happened? And my contention is, for people who haven't read any of my stuff, my contention is that those seven days are spent ordering the cosmos not manufacturing the material cosmos. God did that too. God manufactured the material cosmos. I believe that again, that's a supernatural act. But we have to ask the question, which part of the story is Genesis 1 telling? And in my works, I contend that they're not telling the material manufacture part. They're telling the organizing and ordering part. That's like the distinction that I make um, that it's not like a house story where you're building the house and the foundation and the roof and the plumbing and the electricity and the framing. That's a house story. There's also a home story where you make that house your home, the furnishings, the organization, what each room is going to be used for. And that also is a creation story. Both house story and home story are different creation stories. I believe that Genesis 1 is more like a home story, whereas most people today treat it as if it's a house story. Again, God built the house, no question about it. But what part of the story are they telling? When I have students in my home and they ask me about my place, they don't want me to talk about the plumbing and the electricity. They want to talk about how I've made that my home. And so there's uh, the question of interest. So I believe those are seven literal 24-hour days, but that they are focused on the organizing and ordering of the cosmos, not on the physical manufacturing of the cosmos. And I don't think that that's just my imagination. I think I can demonstrate that that was the most important thing to an Israelite and, for that matter, to the rest of the ancient Near East. I think of different names people in our audience might be familiar with. Dr. Stephen Meyer, uh, Ken Ham, Hugh Ross. You mentioned some of those names in, in your book, uh, Francis Collins. Um, how would you how would you differ than some of the names that I mentioned out there? What, what, what would your model, uh, for those just wanting a quick summary, how would your model differ a little bit from some of those names? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Stephen Meyer heads the Discovery Institute. Um, 
intelligent design. I certainly believe that God is intelligent and that he designed things, but the intelligent design group at the Discovery Institute is very much anti-evolution. Um, and even though they don't say it very much, it seems like they think that the Bible would take them there, but I don't want to speak for them on that mm -hmm. count. Uh, Ken Ham, of course, is representative of the Answers in Genesis, uh, Young Earth Creationism, and he's very intent that unless you read it as seven literal days and a young earth, uh, that you're not reading the Bible well. Uh, Hugh Ross is, uh, favors an old earth, but he still is um, takes a position against human evolution. And so in that sense, he bridges the gap. Uh, he involves uh, his interpretation in what's called concordism. That is, he's very comfortable reading modern science back into the biblical text. You mentioned, very, I just had that as a side note. Could you explain that for those unfamiliar with that term? Concordism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, concordism is people who want to read what we know in terms of modern science and read that back into the biblical text. They don't believe that the biblical authors knew that modern science, but they would say God did. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of planted that information. So when the psalmist might talk about God uh, spreading out the heavens, um, the, uh, the concordist would say, oh, that's the expanding universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, again, I don't fit very well in that group because... I'm committed and accountable to the author's intentions, and those are not in the author's intentions. Mm. Um, so that's how I would differ. Um, and uh, Francis Collins uh, founded Biologos, and Biologos as an organization is committed to what they call evolutionary creation, uh, that uh, God is the creator, but that evolution was uh, is our way of describing how God went about creating. Mm -hmm. And so they're very comfortable with evolution and that makes them unlike the other three groups I've talked about. So um, in the in the end of your book, there was like free, frequently asked questions. And that was one of the questions I noticed that people would ask was, okay, so the purpose of this book, is it to just get Christians, right, to believe in evolution, right? And so oftentimes that very word will become so polarizing among Christians, and it's almost a shutoff term that as soon as you use that word, then it's like, okay, wait a second, maybe you've gone too far. So could you explain that? What, what do you mean by that connection? Yeah. Um, I, I will say clearly, as I've said so many times, it's almost tiring to say it again. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not out there promoting evolution. Um, I'm trying to promote faithful interpretation, reading the Bible well proper methodology, uh, what the text of Genesis says, what the authors intended. So my question very obviously would be, uh, does scripture conflict with evolution? Just because evolution is the main thing that's out there today. Mm -hmm. So people want to know, can, can, when you read the Bible, uh, are you butting heads with evolution? Um, and I don't try to defend evolution but I do try, try to show that, no, if we interpret the Bible within its ancient Near Eastern context, within its textual biblical context, understanding what the authors are doing and how they're doing it, that no, it is not making competing claims with evolution. 
And that means, in my mind, if someone is convinced by evolution or persuaded by evolution, then they have nothing to fear about the Bible interfering with that, and they don't need to reject their Bibles because they have been persuaded of evolution. Mm. Now, I, I'm, I want to be quick to say, if the mainstream science changed tomorrow and they said, oh, evolution now, that was all messed up. We were, we were goofed up. We got it wrong. And now it's this. Uh, my presentations wouldn't change any because I'm not dealing with evolution. I'm dealing with the biblical text in the ancient world and proper methodology. And whatever the new mainstream science would be, if we imagined such a situation, whatever the new mainstream, then I'd want to ask the same question. Is the Bible in conflict with whatever the mainstream science is? Mm. So for me, this is not an issue of trying to defend or promote evolution. This is an issue of defending and promoting biblical authority and reading text well. One of the points that I took away after reading your book was that it feels like God goes, and I believe you use the term manual theology, um, and the idea of God going to where people are at. Um, could you explain what you mean by that? Because I feel like that is such a powerful concept that a lot of times we, again, we try to read, like you mentioned, concordism, right? We try to read in our, our ideas into what God was doing. Um, what do you mean by that term? Well, Biblical interpreters, certainly as early as the Reformation, and I'm sure before that, recognized that for God to communicate effectively, he needs to accommodate his audience. That is, he needs to speak in a language that they know. He needs to address them in terms that they understand. You can't communicate if there's no common ground. And so we find that God throughout history has accommodated. It's an act of accommodation to send Jesus as a human being. He accommodates our flesh, our humanity, even in the incarnation. Uh, so God in his revelation has accommodated to our cultures and languages and ways of thinking. And so in that sense, we have to recognize that he has done so. Um, we don't expect him to speak in an unknown language. Uh, with some unknown culture or some fictional universal culture, he speaks into culture and into language. And that's how communication takes place, no matter where it takes place. Yeah, it's, it can be challenging, right? I think it's maybe Alistair Begg is that uh, my dad and I both like listening to. He says you have to understand Colossi before you can get to Cleveland. And I think there's there's some really good things that's, that are being said here. My question would be a very practical one. And I, uh, Dr. Walton, I have an 11-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 5-year-old. And uh, we, we've used some catechisms, you know, who is God's the creator of everyone and everything. And, of course, what you're saying doesn't undermine that at all. But um, how, do we, how do I speak to my children about Genesis, or even for that matter, like Ez talked about, the, the two-week Christian, or maybe somebody that's even a skeptic, how do we speak to them about this in a way that doesn't um, undermine faith, especially if you've heard your whole life, this is a literal seven-day account, and someone comes along and says, I, everything, you've, everything you've heard is, just, is that's not true, and that's not true. Um, how, how do we speak to a more immature person or somebody that's a baby in the faith about some of these things 
in a way that affirms um, God enthroned. God is, he is who he is. He can does what he wants. Like so, sort of where they, it doesn't undermine faith. Well, I think we're going to have our strongest faith if we understand how we interact with scripture. And that's why I always start with methodology. Uh, we have to know what we're doing when we interact with scripture. Else it's foolishness to speak of it as authoritative. It's only authoritative as we use it appropriately. And so we have to start with methodology. And who are we accountable to? How do we arrive at interpretations? Those are basics that you have to cover. And most people never even think about it. They just go with what they've traditionally heard. Uh, so I want to get people started out on the right foot. Uh, I, I want to address the issues of methodology before we even tackle the idea of conclusions and interpretations that we might, that we might draw. For Genesis 1, um, to ask the question, again, as I did, what kind of creation account is this? Um, what is God doing? I, I'm with a young audience. You know, I taught sixth graders for 15 years uh, in church, you know, and I, I wouldn't stand up and saying, and say, the earth is not young and everything you've heard is wrong. And, yeah. you know, I wouldn't do that. I would yeah. say, let's get at the heart of what Genesis 1, what makes it tick. When God is ordering the world to be his kingdom. And he wants to dwell in it with us, in relationship with us. This is the theology of Genesis, and we need to understand that. That comes before we even address any science issues or age of the earth issues or evolution issues. Let's do what the biblical text is doing. It's addressing what God has done in creation. You know, when a company hires a new CEO or a new president, the president is going to reorganize the company under his control, and then he's going to run it. And so in one sense, this is like God opening up shop. You know, he gets in all the inventory, he organizes it, and then he opens for business. God's in charge. And that's, that's where the key theology is concerned. The age of the earth doesn't have the key theology in it. What the text is doing has the key theology in it. The age of the earth only becomes an issue of theology when you ask, is the Bible true? And of course, I believe that it is. And I believe that it doesn't address the age of the earth. There is no biblical view of the age of the earth in my mind. Okay, but there is very strictly a biblical view about God and is organizing the cosmos under his rule and God reigns. And he reigns among us and he reigns in relationship with us. And I think that's what a young Christian or a young audience needs to hear. Just to tack on to that, just as we kind of wrap up here, I think of the person that, again, is new in their faith. And how would you suggest someone shifts from being like an immature Christian and just relatively new to the ideas of God and, and how to read God's word? What's that next step that they can take to develop um, a deeper understanding of the way they approach scripture? Because I'm assuming most in our audience don't have the Near Eastern background that, that you do. Again, I think that it means you have to start reading about methodology for interpretation. There are a number of good books out there. Um, 
Randy Richards has done a book, uh, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Um, Richard Schultz has a book called Out of Context. Uh, there are books like that. I'm writing one now, just finishing up, called Best Practices for Faithful Interpretation that will talk right. about lots of these issues. Um, I think it's important that people, whether they've been in the church for two weeks or, or 50 years, uh, to understand that they need to think about mm. their methodology. Yeah. And that means that they need to educate themselves. And really, my word to pastors is educate your people in methodology. Mm. Because uh, otherwise, you're just throwing them out there to trust whoever sounds convincing to them. Yep. And mm. that means the last person you listen to is right, yep. which is an unfortunate yep. way to approach things. Dave, I was just talking to someone about this the other day that I was thinking back to my days right, and doing undergraduate work. And the most helpful professors were the ones and, and that I can't necessarily remember their specific classroom instruction, but they taught me how to think about problems. And I think that is such a, a key point uh, that Dr. John Walton that you make. And um, for those that are unfamiliar with your works, what's the best place that they should start? Oh, wow. Uh, it really depends. Yeah. I mean, I have a book that I did with my wife called The Bible Story Handbook. Hmm. If you're teaching Bible stories in Sunday school or to your, to your kids or your grandkids, uh, this is a great place to start. It lays down some basic methodology and then goes through 175 Bible stories. We don't tell the story. We just say, what's going on here and how do you interpret it? And what do you, how can we use this as we teach kids? Uh, in fact, pastors use it sometimes too. But at any rate, uh, mm. that's that's one place to start. Um, there's, uh, I've done a book called uh, Old Testament Theology for Christians. Uh, it is academic, so it's not, you know, it's not kind of an intro introductory beginner's book. Uh, but still, it goes through basic methodology and ideas. Uh, again, the book I'm writing right now, Best Practices for Faithful Interpretation, uh, mm. that would be a great starting point as people try to start evaluating their uh, their methodology. I just, yeah, I just want to encourage our listeners to honestly just do what you said, because I don't know about you, but for me, when I read scripture, there's a point where I can hit it where, where it's like, okay, I need another voice to kind of get their perspective. And yes, there's times I just sit and meditate for 20, 30 minutes just on scripture itself. And that, that's very valuable. But having other stuff where you begin to read material that's a little bit over your head and challenges your thinking, such as, such as yours has done for me, it, it stretches your faith in new ways. And, and so I would just encourage those in our audience um, just to really, really lean into that. So Dave, any closing thoughts you have? No, I was just, I was sort of in, <clears throat> had this thought when he was talking about teaching sixth graders, just mm. the importance of studying the scriptures in community. Yeah. So this, and that, that is historic. I mean, until Gutenberg, probably no one was walking around with their own copy of the scriptures. And so I think there is for, for folks of any spiritual maturity level, there is great value in, in sitting uh, with with people in your faith community, and also via books and other things to to sit with experts, you know, like you said, I'm not an ancient Near Eastern expert, so what do I do? There there are resources for this, and um, yeah, I just I I want to. I think the the scriptures stand up to scrutiny, and um, our our faith is a reasonable faith, and yeah, that's all I got, man. 
Dr. John Walton, thank you so much for taking some time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Best wishes to everybody. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com. 